NFL Combine was this past week, for those who care. And as I was watching, at least the highlights, uh, scrolling through my YouTube every once in a while, uh, and, and studying for this sermon, I recognized there was a lot of similarities. You know, the NFL Combine, really all it is is these highly touted athletes all get together in one place, all the coaches and the GMs and the owners, they gather together in this arena, in this stadium, and they're watching these men perform individual exercises. Things like, how fast can you run a 40? How high can you jump? How far can you throw? Can you catch a ball? I mean, these individual acts, and they're uh, trusting that they have these this ability and these metrics as an aggregate, as they put all those things together for each individual athlete, they can determine through these individual acts who can put all that together on Sunday in the fall and become the best athlete in this year's draft class. And all of that predicated on these individual actions. I began thinking about our text in Matthew, and I thought this is a wonderful way to help us understand the individual actions of Jesus, particularly His miracles and His wonders and the signs that He does, because in the same way, what Christ is expecting of all of those who are around Him there in the time that He was doing His earthly ministry, and all those who, as us, are reading His Word, uh, He expects us, as we look at all the individual actions, all the individual uh, miracles that he does, is, is for us, they're supposed to, as we put them all together as an, in an aggregate, is we're supposed to look at them and determine that he can do much more than these individual actions. Because, right? you know, when you think about the, uh, the, the draft and the combine, uh, they're wanting people to run a 40-yard dash, and they're wanting people to jump really, really high in the air. But really, they're not paying these men millions of dollars because they can jump really high. They're paying them millions of dollars so they can play football really, really well. And in the same way, when we think about the miracles of Jesus, we're not trusting in Christ if you're a Christian in this room. You're not trusting in Christ simply because he can do miracles. We're not placing our faith in Christ simply because he's a miracle worker. I mean, you can look in Scripture and find all kinds of false prophets who can do a lot of wonderful miracles. As a matter of fact, uh, in the end times, there's going to be false prophets who arise who are going to do lots of miracles and lots of wonders, and lots of signs, and we're going to recognize, although these individual actions are wonderful, there needs to be some substance behind these actions that show us and prove to us that they're a person we can place our faith in. And so when we think about Christ, we look at all these individual uh, attempts and exercises of Christ, healing people, raising people from the dead, quieting the storm on the sea, and then we, we take that and we add to it the message that he came to proclaim and the mission that he came to accomplish, then we look at that and we say, well, he can do these things, he preaches these things, he accomplished these things, and then that greatest of all acts, after being crucified, put in the tomb for three days, and then he rose conquering death and sin. All those things that he said he was going to do ultimately accomplishes those by rising from the dead and sitting at the right hand of the Father, and we're supposed to look at all of that, those individual things, and say, he can do what he said he could do. I mean, it's the same thing that what we're going to, I'm taking this illustration way too far, uh, there's coming a day, the draft day, right, in, in the NFL combine, and what these coaches and what these owners are going to have to do is they're sitting there, and they're going to be on the clock, 
And they're going to have to take and ascertain through all these individual exercises and these players, and they're going to have just a couple of minutes to determine which player that they're going to choose and invest in and put their trust in to take their team and take their franchise to where they want to go. And they're going to do that based upon all these individual exercises and the person they said they were and what they said they could do. And I don't want to continue expanding this to the nth degree, but you recognize that we too are on the clock, you and I, and and there's a day that we're going to stand before a holy God, and you know what's going to matter? That you, upon looking at the individual works of Christ, the message of Christ and his mission, and ultimately seeing that fulfilled in his dying on the cross and rising three days later, and you're going to stand there on the clock before a holy God, and you know what's going to be determinative? Whether or not you turn from your sin and you placed your trust in Christ because of what you saw that he did, who he said that he was, and what he accomplished, and you must ask yourself, have you placed your trust in him to accomplish the forgiveness of sin on your behalf? All of that is what we see here in the text in Matthew 9, and really we can sum it up with a preaching point, and that's simply this, that it's Jesus' authority over the symptoms of sin that should serve for us as a really important and powerful confirmation of his divine mission to remove your sin. And that should cause you to respond in penitent faith, a repentant faith, a sorrowful faith, a recognizing your separation from a holy God. And you see all the things that Christ did, even these individual acts that show us that he can overcome the symptoms of our sin, should prove to us if he can cure the symptom of these sins. And he died for our sins and he rose for our sins. He can take care of the root cause of our sin problem before a holy God. So if you haven't already, I want you to open up with me to Matthew chapter 9 there in your Bibles or on your computer, on your iPad, whatever you have brought as a device to open up the Word of God, I'd invite you to do that with me. Uh, We have, to date, finished eight chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, of 28 chapters, and we've done this eight chapters in nine months. So according to my calculations, we have three years to go. All right. Praise the Lord. Are you with me in chapter 9? All right. Follow along with me in verse 1. And getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over from the Gadarenes. That's where he was last week as he crossed over from Capernaum through the Sea of Galilee to the Gadarenes. And now here we have him jumping back into the boat going from the Gadarenes back to his hometown, which is Capernaum, right? You read in um, Matthew and other gospel accounts that, you know, he was raised in Nazareth, but later he moved and he lived in Capernaum. And here in the setting of this text, we have him there at his home with his disciples. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, as Mark and Luke often do, they uh, illuminate some details that Matthew often purposely leaves out. Uh, And Luke and and Mark paint us a really clear picture of the setting here. The setting here isn't just that there's a a paralytic and a couple of friends knocking on Jesus' front door and walking in and asking for some help. Uh, Mark and Luke tell us that actually Jesus' house was packed. As a matter of fact, people couldn't even get in. Mark and Luke say that the same men, how they got into the house of Jesus was they climbed up on top of the roof, knocked a hole in the roof, and lowered this man down on a bed and put him in the presence of Jesus. Now that's an entry. And in here, in that scene, we have Jesus saying this in verse 2. 
And Jesus saw their faith. When we talk about faith, we're talking about the faith of these men, right? The paralytic, right? Think about the humility and faith the paralytic has to have to, be, to bust through a roof and, and be dropped down in the middle of all these people. Think about the measure of faith that he has to have in the authority of Christ to be the center of a very humiliating situation, potentially. And it is his faith and the faith of these four men that Jesus saw. And he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your paralysis is healed. Is that what your Bible says? It isn't, is it? Good, I'm glad you noticed. Right? This man, he's paralyzed, he's coming down there looking for Jesus to heal him. And Jesus pinpoints the problem not as paralysis, but as sin. He's saying the problem that you have isn't necessarily the paralysis. Of course, we all have maladies, we all have problems. But I want you to focus not on, on, on this thing here. I want you to focus on the big problem that you have with God. Right? The ultimate problem that we all have as we stand before and try to relate to God is that we have a, a wall of animosity and enmity and a wall of, of strife and wrath. And we are enemies, according to Scripture, of God. And Jesus, seeing this un, unregenerate man coming down as a paralytic, looks at him, and he says, let me tell you what the problem really is. The problem is that we all, including everyone in the room with him, including everyone in this room, is we have a, a sin problem. And uh, when you talk about paralysis, and you talk about the pains and the maladies you have, I mean, you might as well at least understand and have a category in your theology to understand that all the problems that you deal with, although maybe not acutely because of an individual sin that you've committed, all the problems that you have, your disease, your sickness, uh, you know what, you're in here, you're trying to lose a lot of weight, well, welcome to the sin nature of the world that we live in. The problem is, is ultimately all this can be tracked back to the sin nature of man that we have inherited from Adam. And so really when we find ourselves having to go to the doctor, having to be diagnosed with all these different kinds of diseases and, and problems in our life, really what we can do is... is is recognize this is just a symptom of the root problem, which is our sin nature, which Jesus clearly indicates here. He's no more saying that this man who's paralyzed is paralyzed because of his actions of sin than I would be saying to you that all the problems that you have today and all of the issues you're having in your body is because of your sin actions. But what he's saying is you recognize that if sin did not enter the world, you wouldn't have these diseases. You wouldn't be aging the way that you're aging. You wouldn't be dying of the diseases that you die of. Uh, you wouldn't be having these problems. And it's important for us to do what Jesus is doing here, and it's focusing on the main thing. I mean, he's saying, hey, you think the problem is paralysis, but it's just not. You may be, in your mind, the biggest problem of your life is that you have these physical illnesses. But I want to tell you, the root problem here is your sin problem. And Matthew draws our attention as he's writing out this gospel account of the work of Christ, drawing our whole attention to the purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we see it explicitly here, but I want you to jot down Matthew one twenty one. Just jot it down. We've addressed it 19 months ago when we started this. But it's, it's worth going back to and at least jotting it down to remember why Matthew is even writing this. Before this, in Matthew one twenty one, really you have the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew is, is proving that Jesus is who he says he is, right? That he's the son of Abraham, the son of David. Basically, that Jesus, in his uh, earthly genealogy, is the rightful heir to the promises of both Abraham and David, which is 
full of a bunch of implications in and of itself, that, that through Jesus, through Abraham, through Jesus, the world would be blessed. That through Abraham, through Jesus, right, his descendants would be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sands on the seashore. Through David, uh, he would have an heir on the throne of David, which is the promise of the Davidic covenant, that he would have an heir on the throne forever. All those things fulfilled in Christ. And then after we have that genealogy, then we have just right after that, the the birth, the incarnation of Christ. And in Matthew 1.21, you have Joseph, an angel appearing to Joseph, and say, don't be afraid. Uh, why don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because she's going to bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Listen to this. For he will save his people from their sins. That's the beginning of the gospel of Matthew. So if you wonder, what is the purpose of the gospel of Matthew? When I read it, what should I get out of it? What should I draw out of the text of the gospel of Matthew? It's very clear. You should draw out of the text that Jesus has come, even his name bears witness to the fact that he's going to save their people from their sins. Now, the name Jesus means something, right? It's not like saying, you know, name him Hayden and he'll save people from their sins. The name Hayden, my name, if you didn't know my name, has nothing to do with saving people from their sins. But Jesus, Yeshua, really means in its real translation, Yahweh saves, God saves. It's just his name. So as Jesus is walking around, every time someone says his name, you must be reminded of his earthly mission, not primarily to heal all of the temporary maladies that you have in your life, but to save us from our sins, is what we see there clearly in Matthew 1, 21. And what I hope all of this does, even on the onset of this text, is when we survey passages like this, it's important for us to ask What is Jesus prioritizing in his ministry? Like, what is his whole purpose of doing all these individual actions? And I hope what it does is it makes us consider what's most important. You can sum it up that way. Point number one, you need to consider what's more important. And this is is crucial for us in the age that we live in when people want to take Christ and they want to make him everything that they want, right? Well, he's the miracle worker, and I'm expecting Jesus to work all these miracles in my life. And Jesus in most people's life, or many people's life, is, well, Jesus is whatever that he can do for me in this life, and whatever he can't do for me in this life, he's not worth much to me. The problem with that is that's not why Jesus came to earth. He came into into earth to bear our sins, to be a substitute, an appropriate and sufficient substitute for our sins sins. And all these individual actions that he had done was to prove that he was capable and willing to bear our sins. Even even when you look at these texts, the one we're going to see here and the one we've seen previous to this, whether it's the centurion's servant or uh, whether it's the demon-possessed men, really what you see as Jesus is, is healing these men, what we ought to be seeing through the theme of Matthew is he's willing to take their infirmities and take them away through his power and get rid of them, proof of his ability to bear our sins in our place. All these miracles are meant to show us what he has come to accomplish. And it's just not, right? I mean, and this is what we're going to get to as we continue working through this sermon. When we consider what's more important, what we're going to say is more important to Jesus in the life of this paralytic was that his sins are forgiven than that he could ever walk again. And that's a very important part of the Christian faith that you and I must grapple with and come to terms with, that Jesus, that God, is much more concerned 
about the salvation of souls than the temporary relief of their pain. And we, we must understand that because if you won't, the problem is you're going to deal with so many hurdles in the Christian life that don't need to be there. Because even when we read uh, in the Gospels, there are times where Jesus leaves a crowd of people waiting to be healed. What do you, doctrinally, what do you do with that? If Jesus primarily came to heal all of the diseases in this moment, in this day, what do we do with that when Jesus walks away and doesn't heal everybody? As a matter of fact, why did he die on the cross if there were still millions of people around that had still not been healed yet? Why did Jesus go away if his primary role was to heal people of all their infirmities in the here and now? As a matter of fact, why is he not here now? Why is it that we have family members and friends in the hospital right now dying of disease, having maladies, walking in here in all kinds of braces and all kinds of pain, if the primary goal of Jesus in his earthly ministry was to get rid of all that pain? It's a question you have to answer if that's why you believe that Jesus came here in the first place. However, if you believe that what God wants us to consider is what's more important, getting rid of the temporary pain that we're going to have, or that our sins are forgiven. I want you to jot down this text, Psalm 90. Psalm 90, we'll look specifically at verse 10. The beginning of Psalm 90, you have the psalmist talking about the infinite nature of God, that, that God has always been, that He was the uncaused cause, that God has always been there, and when we continue working through the, the book or this uh, psalm, Psalm 90, we get to verse 10 and we transition from the infinite nature of God to the finite nature of a human being. And in verse 10, it says this The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. I mean, average life, even to this day, is somewhere in the 70s, right? Unless. Uh, if you are to die of natural causes, the odds are you're going to make it somewhere into that bracket of 70-ish, right? I mean, if, if something happens, if you stay reasonably healthy, you're going to make it into that area. And by reason of strength, 80, right? So you work out, you're healthy, maybe g- genetics have been a blessing in your life from your family. By reason of strength, you can live to around in the 80s, somewhere in that bracket. This is where most all of us are going to land in our life. Yet, it says, their span is but toil and trouble. We know that, don't we? Thorns and thistles you're going to bear in your life. And as you get older, you would be able to attest the thorns and thistles look to be a little bit bigger at times. And, and we sit here and we think, that's, that's a lot of what life looks like. But what I want to turn your attention to is, is the rest of verse 10. Your life... The years of your life are 70, and even by strength, 80, but they are soon gone. They're soon gone. 70, 80 years, gone. Uh, James and, and other uh, Psalms teach us that our life is but a mist to God, like a flower of the field, here today and gone tomorrow. Like your life is a whisper when it comes to God, fleeting. And it's important for us to think about that because they're soon gone and then we fly away. What a poetic way to say you're going to die. You're going to be put into a box six feet under the ground. And uh, I trust if you're a Christian in here, your soul is going to go stay with Christ until the resurrection of the saints. 
all this to bring us to this question for you. That what's more important? And I use, I use a graphic analogy, even in the, even in the 9 o'clock. I, I think about the Holocaust. So you don't really think about the Holocaust much until some goofy person like me brings it up, right? Uh, and you don't think much about it. But when you do, you're sitting there thinking, what a terrible, terrible situation and circumstance that those millions of people had to go through. Now, I want you to, to think about this. For those of, in the Holocaust who were saved who turned from their sins, placed their trust in Christ. I think of one Christian missionary, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right, who, who went back to Germany uh, and to try to, try to free and release as many of these people from possible and try to thwart the, uh, thwart the plan of the Nazis. And even when he was there, he got caught, and eventually he was put to death just weeks before the Allied troops storm in and liberate that camp. That's an emotional story, isn't it? But you want to know what Dietrich Bonhoeffer and all those saints are not thinking about right now? The Holocaust. Not a single one of them. They are all those redeemed saints who died such terrible deaths are standing there at the throne room of God and they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know what they're not thinking about? Their infirmities, their maladies. They're not thinking about the, the most the torturous death that they died on, on, at the hands of, of evil people. They're sitting there enamored at the glory and the holiness of God and they're thinking not of all the things that they dealt with here. And all we're saying is if we think about the infinite nature of God, we see the 70 or 80 years that you live today as a blip on the radar, as a dot on the map, and we see eternity as everything else. The dot on the map, and, and then everything else is eternity. And you must recognize that God is looking at your life that way. And so when it comes to you having a malady, having disease, inevitably we're all going to die. It's appointed for man once to die, and then comes judgment. Right? Whatever you believe about the healing work of God, you believe that God's main prerogative isn't to keep you alive here as long as possible. Because here it comes, you're going to die. If that's news to you in here, welcome. Okay? You're going to die. And what we must do is, uh, again, conf- uh, causing, allowing the Holy Spirit to cause us to think about what's most important. And it just isn't, when it comes to your well-being, the next 70 or 80 years. It's every year after that, called eternity. And God, in His infinite nature, is focused on your eternity, primarily focused on your eternity. Just like a good parent is okay with his, their child dealing with certain issues while in this place while they're young for this amount of time because they know they need to prepare them for what's to come. I mean, how many times have you, if you have a kid or when you were a kid, told mom and dad, I don't want to go to school? And you said, guess what you're doing today? You're going to school. How many of you have parents, kids say, I didn't want to go to church? And you said, you're going to church. Why? Because you know that whatever they're dealing with right now, whatever, whatever possesses them in this moment to, to have just a disdain for going to church, you're going to say, you're going to go through this, and it's going to be better for you. And, and ultimately, you're going to understand the reason and the cause for all these things. Because I'm mama and I'm data. And I'm going to tell you what's best for you. And I know that it is because I see the big picture. You have a God who sees the big picture. And we must recognize that God says what's most important is that your sins are forgiven. Just like a hundred years from now, it's not going to matter that you were limp, that you were mute. Some of us in here, it doesn't matter how ugly we are. Right? That's just not going to be on top of your mind. When you, when you stand before the Lord, all those things right now that you're like, this is, just, this is the worst not even going to be in your mind 100 years from now. Not doing it. 
because you're going to be so focused on eternity. The same thing that God in Christ, even on earth, was focused on. I've come to, every time you talk to Jesus, the disciples talk to Jesus, that people talk to Jesus, he was always talking about his Father and eternity. I've come to do the will of my Father. I mean, he's about to go to the cross, and he's sitting there, and he's praying to God, struggling with the, with, with the humanity that, that he's bearing, that he's about to have to go die on the cross. And he sits there, Lord, if you will, take this from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And it pleased the Father to glorify the Son through the death of the Son. You want to talk about maladies? I don't have enough time to just sit on point number one all morning. But think about the maladies and the suffering that, that led ultimately to the, to the best good and the greatest thing that could ever happen in history. You think about the maladies of Christ. You think about what, the God, what God the Father willed and purposed for Christ to go through. And then recognize that was ultimately the best thing that God could have ever done was put his son through the most unimaginable pain and suffering that could ever existed, and it was good. Right? I mean, we recognize what God does with even the worst circumstances in our life. We need to consider what's most important, and Jesus died and suffered for what was most important, and it wasn't that Jesus would live to a ripe old age here on earth. is that he would die a premature death so that sins would be forgiven. And all I'm saying is that should be sufficient for us when we look at this text and we think about who Jesus is, that it, the focus is just not on all of this life going so well for you. Because ultimately, what we're placing our trust in is eternity is secured for us in Christ through the forgiveness of sin. Doesn't mean don't care about lesser things. You text me, you're in the hospital, you better believe I'm praying for you. You better believe that whatever's going on in your life, I'm praying for you. But we have to, like I said earlier, have that category in our mind where we're saying, I'm not, I'm not praying necessarily that God is going to cause everyone here to live an extra 20 years. Because I just know categorically in the Bible, God's will isn't for everyone to live 20 more years. It's actually contrary to God's will for everyone to live 20 years because he has set in the book of Acts, he has set your, your life, he's put you in the place in the decade that you live, and he has put you in the geographical location that he has set aside for you since the beginning of time. And you live there, and he has every one of your days numbered. And so the prayer is more like, God, I pray if you will that you would heal this person, but nevertheless not my will, your will be done. And until that, I pray that you would give them comfort. I pray that you would give them solace. I pray that you would provide for them and show them your good hand and favor in their life. Amen. And I rejoice when God does acts and singular actions in this life to heal people from their sickness and from their cancer. But I recognize that God does not change in my mind when he doesn't. I don't look at God any differently when he doesn't because that is just not the main reason he came in Christ. We all on the same page there? I can move on now. Okay. But we, and listen, I know this is an unpopular message. I mean, you could fill up a church uh, with a different kind of message with Christ wants all the good for you right here and now, and he wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And I understand that this is an unpopular message. Uh, but it's an unpopular message even when we're talking about sin. I mean, look at verse 3. When we talk about unpopular, Jesus beginning his unpopular ministry, look at verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Mark 2 and, and Luke 5, they add uh, the reason why they're saying that Jesus is blaspheming. When they say this, why does Jesus speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's good theology, a misapplication of it. Right? We all believe that like, only God can forgive sins. But if they understood all of these individual acts of Jesus, corroborated with his mission and his message, 
shows that that's exactly who he identifies in his divinity, that he is fully God and fully man. So they're not wrong, they just do not recognize to whom they're talking to. In Jesus, verse 4, knowing their thoughts, I mean, this wasn't even spoken, it was just their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? As we read through the Gospels, you're toggling back and forth in your mind between the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. I mean, we just read a couple of sermons ago that Jesus was asleep in the boat. That's pretty human-like, isn't it? We're tired. I've fallen asleep in a couple of boats myself. But here, he's reading people's minds. I mean, this is an absolute act of divinity that he looks into the mind of man and he knows it intently. It's an important part as we read the Gospels to recognize the complete humanity and the complete divinity of Christ, that He was both God and man. And here is just a really good example of no one's reading people's minds but God. And He understands our minds and the intentions of our heart, and that should cause us to glory in Christ. Verse 5, knowing their thoughts, why are you thinking evil in your thoughts? Verse 5, which is easier to say, key word say, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. So when we think about this, you don't get confused about this, what Jesus is saying here. What is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiving, forgiven, or is it easier to say, rise, get up, and walk? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven, isn't it? Because there is no empirical evidence necessary or available. Right? If I say your sins are forgiven, oh, okay, well, you can't prove that. But Jesus is saying, so that you would know, right? I mean, you need to know that, that I can do both of these. And he says, which is easier to say? Or to rise and walk? Because if you think about rising and walking, if I say, okay, all right, I can forgive sins, and now I'm going to show you by telling somebody to get up and walk, right? You're paralyzed. Get up and walk. You're going to need some necessary empirical data to from to prove, or at least for you to trust that I can do what I say. Because when I say, get up and walk, you're waiting for a couple of things to happen. You're waiting for these people to get up, pick up their mat, and get on with life as usual for the rest of us. And so Jesus is making something really clear. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven, and it's much more difficult to say, rise and walk. But it's important for us to recognize that what's actually harder to forgive sins, right? Mark and Luke, the, the scribes already said that. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so what Jesus is doing here, again, is using an individual action to prove that he can do the greater, more complete action, which is to forgive sins. So he's using this paralytic as an object lesson to say, listen, to show you that I can do this greater thing, I'm going to do this in a real way, lesser thing, but in a real physical, empirical way, a greater thing, which is to make this man get up and walk and go home. And he does this, verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And you should highlight that. Right? If you're one of those people trying to learn about what Jesus is doing here, this is the key verse for you to understand everything about what Christ came here to accomplish and that He came here to accomplish primarily the authority to forgive us of our sins. So then, because of that, he says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In verse 7, the paralytic man, he rose and he went home. That, that statement there in verse 6 is the purpose statement of Jesus' whole ministry. 
that he would have the authority on earth to forgive sins. And he was proving that through individual actions of healing. And we saw just another one right here. And I don't want you to take this for granted because I know as we've been expositing uh, these chapters, it seems clear, at least in your mind, like, yeah, Pastor, I know we've said this over and over again, that Jesus came, he did these miracles to prove that he had authority to forgive sins. Yes, but we've been implying that in the text. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus literally explicitly says, this is what I'm doing. And so it's worth for you and I to note that, that this is the first time that Jesus says, I have came to do these individual actions of healing and miracles to show you that I'm actually here to do something else, something much deeper, something that gets to the root of the problem, and that is to forgive you of your sin. To give himself, as Mark 10, 45 says, as a ransom for many. And Jesus, being 30 years old, is when normal rabbis could start their, their ministry. It wasn't until 30 years old where, where in rabbinical tradition that uh, these men could take on the role as, as itinerant teachers. And Jesus, at 30 years old, takes on this role as a rabbi. So what the word teacher means when we see teacher, it's rabbi in, in the Greek uh, and, or the Hebrew. And what we see is Jesus spending the next three years, about three years, spending the next three years teaching them why he's here. Three years of Jesus' whole earthly ministry, he's just showing through these actions and through his m- message what he had come to accomplish. And it was everything, including these miracles, was to show us that he was here to take care of our sin problem. I want you to sum it up this way, point number two. You need to identify the purpose of Jesus' miracles. Identify the purpose of Jesus' miracles. If you're keeping up with us in our daily Bible reading, this last week you read Mark chapter 8, which I think is a wonderful text for you to jot down or flip to. Uh, to show you Jesus' attitude when it comes to the purpose of, of miracles. And uh, I just think it's a really great text that shows you both the emotional response of Christ to those who always seek miracles and Jesus' actual attitude towards those who incessantly seek for miracles who don't understand what the most important thing is, which is the forgiveness of sin. You can look at it Mark 8. Jot it down at least, and I'll read it for you. Mark eight eleven through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And isn't that, I mean, don't we all struggle, and I know you do, we all do, struggle with Pharisaical uh, proclivities? I mean, all the time that we all struggle with these Pharisaical tendencies when it comes to uh, when it comes to who Christ is and how we live this life. I mean, and, and this is one of them, right? If you're one of those people, I just want God, I want God to do this. Pro- I need God to prove himself to me by doing blank. I need God to prove himself to me by doing this, by healing my sickness, by getting me that job, by, you know, promoting me in this area. To, you know, if God's God, then that, then that woman, she's, she's going to come over here and ask me for my number, right? I mean, isn't that pharisaical? Aren't we testing God? That God, you are only God if you do these things, or I, will, I only acknowledge you as God if you do these things. And we're going to say, God is God, whether you acknowledge that God is God or not. That's what the whole Bible is here for, is to help you acknowledge that God is God. And here, you have these Pharisees seeking for a sign. And look at verse 12. I think it's very telling of Jesus. And, and Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? 
you know, just a small observation. You notice that he didn't just point at the Pharisees right there. He said the whole generation. He said all these people, all they do is seek for a sign. Like when they think about Jesus, they're saying, Jesus, what sign can you do for me today? What sign can you do? What miracle can you work in my life this week? And Jesus, sighing deeply in his spirit, said, why is this what people think that I'm here for? Is it great when God does something? Is it great when God does, when, when, when God heals a sick person? Isn't it great when God does deliver you out of situations and circumstances that are way too big? Absolutely. And God has promised to care and shepherd his people. I mean, we, Psalm 23, we just read it. He lies me, he lays me beside still waters. And, and even in the presence of my enemies, he prepares a table before me, anoints my head with oil. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't deliver them. He didn't keep the enemy from coming in. He didn't keep them from walking down the shadow of death. Ultimately, the, the psalmist's hope is that he will help him arrive securely into eternity. I mean, all of that, I think, is a right theological understanding of what God is doing. And in, here in Mark 8, it's not that God in Christ would just give people signs whenever they wanted them. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. You want to know Jesus' attitude with people, these Pharisees in that generation? All they want is a sign. He says, I'm out. Get into the boat. I'm rowing to the other side. And if you've ever been on one of those sailboats, they don't move very fast at first. And so it's a while. I mean, they, those Pharisees get the message. Like, he's, he's leaving. He's slowly, but he's driving home the point that he's not here for that. And all I'm saying is, by all means, pray to God that he would uh, do a great work in your life, that he would, uh, you know, deliver you from your uncertain circumstances, that God would heal those in your life who have cancer or sicknesses or illnesses, all those things. But what I'm saying is it, it ought not to change the identity of who God is in your mind when he doesn't. And that will happen when you properly identify what in the world Jesus was here to do. And that is obviously the forgiveness of sin. But even with that being said, and I think I've alluded to that, Jesus didn't minimize miracles and neither do we. Right? I believe that God acts in accordance with his will and his good purpose believe in scripture we see that so often in the works of god uh, but jesus knew the value of miracles and he knew their value to authenticate his message that's what he knew i mean this is why jesus did the miracles because you know what people probably weren't doing They're, they probably weren't gathering around him there on the whether it's the mount or in other places and say you know what at dinner that night thinking you know what jesus had a real good point when he talked about you know, the sin of hate and anger, how it's just like murdering somebody in their heart. That's probably not how it happened. I mean, like this text, they're going home and they're like, did you see that? That dude was, and then he was, and then he was, right? That was cool, right? But you know, Jesus also knew something about miracles, that the glimmer and the shine of miracles, they fall off, but you know what stays behind? The message, right? Right now, I've been, I've been to Israel, and I've been in a lot of places around Israel and Jerusalem. And you know what I hear when I'm there? The message of Jesus. You know what I don't really hear a lot about? The miracles of Jesus. Because the miracles, they're going to taper off. But what matters, and Jesus knew it, is the message. Miracle, that's great. It's a flash, right? It's like, sh let me show you what I'm here to do, and let me give you the message behind this. Because the miracles are going are to diminish. They're going to stop. They're going to cease. But, but the message, the Word of God, it's forever. 
So here, Jesus, understanding this, uses this miracle to authenticate the message of forgiveness of sin. And verse 8 says it. I mean, here's the, the response of the crowd to the miracle. When the crowd saw it, saw what? The miracle. They were afraid. My Greek lexicon, it, well, the word afraid uh, is the word for we get phobia, right? Phobio, right? Uh, where we get the word afraid. I have a phobia of this or that. In my Greek lexicon, because the word afraid in the Greek has a wide semantic domain, which means there's just a lot of usages of the word. And so determining the usage, determine the meaning through a bit of the usage in the context of verse 8, if you even follow along with that, uh, in my Greek lexicon, it says this, to have such awe or respect for a person as to involve a measure of fear. There's the best way that you could ever imagine that word being used of Jesus is either as an awe and a respect for the person that involves a measure of fear. I mean, isn't that exactly what happened last week with the, with, you know, when they were in the Gadarenes and the village came? They were exceedingly afraid and they asked him to leave. Right? Wrong response, right emotion. Here, again, right emotion, right response. They were afraid and they glorified God. Doxazo. Right? The glor- they glorified God. Really, doxazo, right? It's that idea of feeling the weight of. And I, I highlighted it this way, right? Fear of God ought to help you understand the weight of God. And I hope that when you come to this church, you leave with a little bit of the weight of God on your shoulders as you're walking out. Right? Not to burden you with unnecessary things, but to help you see that the God that you worship is a weighty God. He is a holy God. He is a transcendent God, and yet He's an imminent God. And this God deserves our worship and awe and fear. Right? It is the fear of God that is the beginning of knowledge. Right? You want to even begin thinking right about God? Guess what you're going to have to do first? Fear God. That's why you have people who don't have any fear for God. They say just all kinds of odd things about who God is. But people who have a great fear and awe and reverence for God, they begin... Uh, through the, the lens of their life, their worldview, they begin making decisions and saying things about God in, in, through the lens of, I am afraid of God. I have a fear, a reverent fear in all of God. And even the most holy of, of saints that you see in throughout Scripture, when they see the presence of God, although they know they're loved by God, some of these were prophets who were called by God. They speak to God and have God's words spoken through them, but yet they see God in the throne room at least the manifestation of the holiness of God through His glory being manifested into the throne room. And what do they do? They drop to their face, prostrate on the ground. Woe is me. But yet they recognize the whole time God loved them. They loved God. And I'm saying these aren't mutually exclusive ideas. The fear of God and the love of God. I believe the only way that you're going to properly love God is you have proper fear of God. And at least in, in some part, and I don't believe that the crowd here completely understood what they were afraid of. I think what they saw was this man claiming a lot of things, and whew, you know, compared to all the rest of the people in that crowd, he was, he was pretty fearful to be around. But the excuse that they have of just the ignorance of not having the illumination of the entire canon of Scripture, you and I don't have. Because this crowd right here, what we have is the complete canon of Scripture, all 66 books. We have the, the Holy Spirit if you're saved in this room. And so therefore you have the illumination of the Holy Spirit to help you understand what all these texts mean. And so you know precisely what God was doing and is doing through the person and work of Christ. And if these people here saw 
what Christ was doing, and at least in part understood something about who he was, and they glorified him, who had given such authority to men, what ought you think should be our response, knowing who Jesus is? Clearly, we should have an awe and fear of God that should lead us and cause us to worship. Put it this way, point number three. You need to designate proper awe and worship to God. Designate proper awe and worship to God. I imagine no one there in that crowd other than Jesus understood the implications of the life of Jesus over the next couple of years, but you and I, we do, don't we? When we look at the Scripture, we recognize that God had given authority to the Son to bear witness about coming judgment and the salvation that is there in Christ Jesus, and then Jesus attested to these realities through signs, wonders, and miracles, and all of that was to show that Jesus was everything that He said He was, and then He goes takes our place, bearing the wrath of God, taking on our sin, removing the guilt of our sin before a holy God, justifying the unjustifiable. And then those of us knowing this, that that is what Christ came to do and that's what He did, now He's there at the right hand of the Father, those who will turn from their sin and place their trust in Christ today will be justified before God expiated, gone. One of those big words we use uh, in, in the Bible is that he's the propitiation, right? That, that he, the propitiation, what a wonderful word, right? That propitiation means that he took wrath that we deserved and gave us the favor of God, right? That's why even other words aren't, aren't so great when we think about the goodness of the sacrifice of God. It isn't just that Christ died for your sin and said, all right, clean slate, try again. No, no, propitiation, that he, he took your, the wrath that you deserved and then extended you favor in the sight of God. And all I'm saying, you know that, church. Maybe not in all those words, but you know, the, you know that, don't you? That God has given you favor, taken the wrath that you deserve and given you good favor from him. Has a place in heaven, in, in the, has a place in the new heavens and new earth for you? You open up the book, your name is there. And I'm saying that should, for you and me, it should designate a proper awe and and worship to God. There are a couple of scriptures I was debating between of of helping us understand this. There's one in Revelation that I think at least give you a big view of who God is and the transcendent nature of God and how we ought to worship Him. But I thought, you know, one of the big problems that we also have is not understanding how to worship God here and now. And so, with that being said, I chose to relegate the Revelation passage to the back of your note sheet for your life group application question, and I decided to use Colossians three sixteen and 17 as our sermon text uh, for the application of worship and awe. So, if you would, at least jot down or turn to Colossians three sixteen through 17. I want you to designate the kind of awe and, and fearful, with love, worship to God. I want you to have awe and fear for God, and I want it to cause you to worship Him in in the most mundane parts of your life. And that requires a corporate aspect and an individual aspect. You need to worship God appropriately when it comes to your individual life and your corporate life. And and Colossians 3, 16 and 17 do a helpful helpful thing for us in helping us get to a place of, of proper worship. Verse 16, the first thing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
You don't have to think nebulous about this. You don't have to have this ethereal, floating in the air concept of what that means. The Word of Christ is just the Word of God. The very words of Jesus, do those words, do the commandments of God, do they dwell richly in you? If you think about yourself as, you know, this capsule, or you think about yourself as this vessel, that inside of this vessel, that this human body, the Word of Christ and all the commands of the Lord, they dwell in there richly. I mean, I think about, you think about a pantry. I mean, do, do you have an environment in your soul, in, in your body, where the Word of Christ, it ages well in your life, that it is applied fervently in your life? Are you that place where the Word of Christ is so out of place in you that there's no way for it to, to dwell richly? It, the Word of God, the, the prompting of the Spirit, is quenched and so soured in your life that you, you're not an inhabitable place for the Word of God to be operating. Verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Are you an individual? A lot like Proverbs says, it is through storing your word in my heart that I would not sin against you. That idea, like it's here, it's in me. The, the Word of Christ, it dwells in me, and it dwells in me, it oozes out of my pores. You know, every once in a while, I've got to wipe it up because it's just coming out, right? And I'm talking to people, and I just can't help that out of the, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I mean, that's how you know when the Word of Christ dwells richly in somebody. It's just you can't get into a conversation with them without them popping out what God's Word says about things, or you know, how, how they're just overjoyed about the goodness and, and the mercy of God in spite of the worst circumstances in our lives. Let the Word of Christ dwell in your ritual. There's a great application, both individually and corporately. When you come in here, I mean, how do you talk to one another? Is it as though the Word of Christ dwells in you richly? When you're talking to your coworkers, when you talk to your spouse or your kids, can they see the Word of Christ welling up in your heart and coming out of your mouth? Second, right, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I think this is an area that our church needs to grow in quite a bit, is this idea of, do you know that the teaching and admonishing is not just from the pulpit. It's also within the congregation. And the way that we ought to do this is with all wisdom. And so one of the biggest problems I see, and I think when people are, I think many people in here have a heart to say, you know what, I, I want to address this person. I just don't know how. Well, the problem is the end of that, isn't it? that you have to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Well, how are you going to be able to address people in all wisdom? You have to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so much of the lack of wisdom that we have in addressing one another and helping guide one another in our Christian faith has a lot to do with the fact that we don't even allow the Word of God to live in us, to operate in us, and that we don't take time in our life to absorb and consume the Word of God in such a way where it would overflow out of our heart in helping and teaching and admonishing other people with wisdom. Here's a corporate one, the third one here. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. You want to designate proper awe and worship to God? That means the corporate position of worship music should be in your mind a very significant part of your life and of your worship. Right? And men, I'm looking at you right now, every one of you. Okay, I mean this, and, and all everyone, right? I mean this idea. You wanna, you want you fear God. You wanna worship God. You need to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You wanna know the one of the ways that God teaches and admonishes people through congregational singing. You stand up. We have these chairs a little bit turned, so if you're over there, you can kind of see over there, and if you're over there, you can kind of see over there. And we're singing truths about God, Christ-exalting truths about God to one another. 
And I'm going to tell you what, how many times I've, I've listened to a lyric, I'm hearing this congregation sing the lyric, and it cuts me to the heart because I'm convicted and I'm moved to obedience to God, not, not because of the offering or not because of the preaching in that moment, but because of the congregation singing in unison and harmony the words of God. And that should do something, and it must do something. And that's why nothing, nothing irks me more, it's a good theological word, irks me more, than when I see men, when we're doing worship, looking at the gum on their shoe, picking their, their fingers, looking at the time, and looking around with their arms crossed and their mouths closed. Nothing tells me more about the lack of fear and awe that you would have than that you would stand in here amongst the congregation and keep your mouth closed when we're opening our mouths unto the Lord. Last one. And whatever you do, and this is, again, this is corporate, but this also individual. You want, and I love this because Paul's saying, and all the other things too. Right? You, you want to say, what, what all should I do when it comes to worshiping? Well, and everything else. Whether you speak or whether you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You know what a wonderful way to, to begin living with proper awe and worship? Whatever, wherever you go, whatever event you just had planned, wherever you step in, wherever you go, you ask, can I do this in the name of the Lord? It's going to change a lot of places you show up, isn't it? Can I walk in here, do this activity, and I could say it verbally to everybody in the room, I am doing this in the name of the Lord. They're going to think you're, you're crazy either way. But they're going to think you're a lot more crazy when you're doing something that most people know the Lord is not calling you to do that. And the conviction it ought to have is you walk and do everything in your life, whether you're talking to your spouse or to your kids, and whatever comes out of your mouth, you say, in the name of the Lord. Can you do that? Fully knowing with the conviction that you have of the Holy Spirit that you could actually do that in the name of the Lord. You see how this, that's what the picture of worship and all looks like in Scripture when it comes to our life individually and corporately. These things, when we think about who Christ is, the forgiveness of sin, it should move us to worship God. Mm-hmm.